0: We are two studies away from being done with the book of Philippians. We're in an in-depth study and I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed slowing down instead of doing a chapter a week and just really being able to dive in. I I love it so much that we're gonna choose another book to do it with and I wanna get to 1 Samuel here pretty soon. So I'm not sure whether we'll do 1 Samuel next And, and I think we'll highlight our way through the book so we're not going to cover it verse by verse, but we're going to highlight our way through it. Um, we'll be getting the life of David, of Saul and David in the book of, of 1 Samuel. It's been a long time since we've done it. And, um, or we might be in in-depth another New Testament book. I'm, we're still praying and, and determining that. Uh, however, uh, the title of our message today is The Surprising Satisfaction of Contentment. The Surprising Satisfaction of Contentment. I've got another title. The Surprising Dissatisfaction of Buying Things. <laughs> Which is really true, isn't it? You buy something and it's great for a little while. And then you, if you're like me, you have buyer's remorse. Pretty soon you get a new car. Pretty soon it feels like the old car. And there's a lot to learn from the scriptures about being content. And while I've been studying for this, taking time to stop and pray, and to always want to apply these things to my life, and to ask God whether or not I'm really being content, and if there's areas that he wants to work it out in my life, I can tell you that there's been a satisfaction to just step back and go, you know what, I don't need a new car. I don't need, you know, uh, you know whatever, I don't, I don't need a new TV. I don't need a cup of coffee. We say we need when we don't really need, right? We should use a different word for it. Maybe wants better because we could probably make it for a long time with what we've got. And it's interesting. The Bible isn't saying it's wrong to get new things. The Bible is just going to tell us that it's wrong to live for those things. And it's wrong to live for getting new things. And that's a lot of times the way that we live. And there would be a lot of things that would be helped if we learn to be content with the things that God has provided for us. And one of those is how much in debt you are. The, when we learn to be content and go, I don't really need this, uh, it can help us with how much debt we have and that's gonna help you in so many ways over the years. Now there's one statement here in, in this passage that is often quoted that is taken out of context. And I'm not saying, it's, it's a plaque statement. It's a statement people put on the wall. It's one that people will put up on, on social media. Uh, and it's a great statement, but the context provides something that is, again, a little surprising. And I'm not going to tell you what that is yet. I'm going to make you wait for that. A little, a little bit of a tease there uh, for you. Uh, the Bible tells us clearly in 1 Timothy 6, 8, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content." Food and clothing, with these we shall be content. I always say I'd like God to throw in shelter. I just would like shelter. I can handle food or clothing, but I'd like shelter. The day that we live in, the city we live in, this is one of the most spread out cities. When, Tucson's larger than Albuquerque now. When I moved from Albuquerque to Tucson, Tucson was smaller than Albuquerque, but Tucson's grown larger. It's far more spread out. You can get anywhere in Albuquerque still in 15 minutes. And I live 35 minutes from both campuses. In, I live in Ore Valley, to, to be fair. But I still live a long ways. And you can literally, you know, you can drive 45, 50 minutes across town, maybe even longer if traffic. Uh, and so a car, maybe I'm just saying, maybe a car that the Bible would say with food and clothing and a donkey. <laughs> and, you know, a hut. With these, you should be content. But the Bible saw fit to say with food and clothing. Jesus said, your father knows you need food, drink, and clothing. So he put in water. He put in drink into into that. And that's in Matthew 6, 31. And before we get into contentment, let's just consider the last chapter of the book of Philippians for a moment because it's a really interesting chapter. It is a chapter that I would like to teach sometime in one setting. Because the first seven verses talk about peace. Be anxious for nothing, but everything with prayer and supplication. Let your request be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind. The next section, this is still in the verse, seven verses. is true, whatever's noble, whatever's pure, whatever's of a good report, and he lists eight things, think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. So the first seven verses are about peace. Verses 10 through 13, which we're studying today, are about contentment. And the last section of the book, of, of, the, of the chapter and the book is on generosity. He is so thankful for the generosity of this church up in Philippi to him. And, and when we finish up the book, we're gonna talk about generosity and what that means to us and how God has promised us that we will be blessed if we become generous People. The context that we are in as we look at as we look at this this uh, is all on being content. And Paul talks about rejoicing in contentment. He also talks about, I get to the right place here where I've got it. Where am I? I messed up my notes bad, by the way. Again, I tried not to. Um, he talks about rejoicing in commitment, in contentment. He talks about how to be content, and he also talks about the source of contentment. That's what we're gonna be covering today. We're gonna look at those three things today. So let me do what I've been wanting to do lately. I wanna read the text without interruption, and then I wanna come back and we're gonna break it down. So verse 10 of Philippians chapter four says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard of need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The first thing that I notice here is that he talks about rejoicing. And this doesn't surprise us, right? Because the whole book of of, of Philippians has been about rejoicing. And the fact that he's writing from prison, awaiting what we know will be a death sentence, makes it even more surprising that he can rejoice. And the fact that he's writing to a people, the Philippians, who are under intense persecution. Some of them are being arrested. Some of them are being beaten and flogged, which was a punishment in the days of the Romans. And some of them have been killed. And he speaks about that as he writes to the Philippians. They are in intense persecution and he tells them to rejoice. He talks about his own joy in prison and he talks about their own joy in the midst of the difficulties that they're going through. In other words, when he gets to these verses, 10 through 13, he's at the heart of what the book of Philippians is all about. And the first thing that he says to them as he's going to enter into this section about contentment is that he rejoices. Now, you need to know a little bit more about the next little section to understand why he's rejoicing. The little town of Philippi, first of all, uh, is a poor region. It it doesn't have a lot of resources. Just a little ways down further from them was the church of Thessalonica and they they were in Thessalonica. That was a richer area. When you got down to Athens, very rich. When you went down to the coast of Corinth, those are just in a line there in Greece. You come down to Corinth, it's very wealthy. You would go over the sea to Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. And again, extremely wealthy, a lot of resources, a lot of commerce, a lot of those things taking place. But Philippi was poor. But when Paul left and went from Philippi, which he was kind of chased out of there, he planted the church within three weeks, a decade from the time he's writing this, or around a decade. And he goes down to the church of Thessalonica, which is the next, or goes down to Thessalonica, plants a church there, it's just the next kind of town down. They sent two or three times a need for him, out of his need, they sent to help him. They took a collection and they sent it to Paul. Then when he went to Athens, because he had to leave Thessalonica kind of quickly, had to go to Athens, and then he had to go, then he, then he was in Corinth and then he was in Ephesus, they lost track of him. They, they didn't know where to send it. In their day, we can understand how you could lose track of someone. And so they didn't have the opportunity. That's why he says, I know you cared, but you lacked opportunity. But now when they discover that he's in Rome in prison, they send Epaphroditus, who is someone from Philippi, to his pr- pr- uh, Roman prison, and they provide for his needs in Rome. And Paul rejoices. And we're going to learn, not because of the gift at all. But he rejoices because he loves them. He has this great love. There's been a fellowship. There's been a koinonia. There's been a real connection with them. They cared for him when no one else did. And all of a sudden to have Epaphras uh, bring him a gift touched his heart. And so he rejoiced. That's what it starts with but I rejoice. And he's gonna make it clear that his rejoicing is not because of the gift, but because of the contentment that he has and that they have provided for him. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last your care for me has flourished again. He loves the fact that they have been able to give to him again. And he's gonna say later on, not that I seek your gift, but I seek the fruit that would abound to your account. He doesn't care about the money. He just loves the fact that they've been able to give to him in his great hour of need. And we're going to learn again in the next study that Paul is abandoned by everybody in prison. And so for them to reach out to him in this way really touched his heart. And he is so thankful for it. Note the word flourished. It's an interesting word. It's a Greek word for something that has been dormant, that has come back to life. It's like the plants you have that are dormant, that are beginning to show forms of life in your yard right now, if you're here in Tucson. They're flourishing. And they looked dead just a little while ago. He says, for you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Now I want to talk about, a little bit, about joy, rejoicing, and contentment. Because somehow it might seem, like, that doesn't really go together. You're going to rejoice and be content with what you've got. But Paul is saying that to them. I rejoiced, and, and he's going to talk about all the things that he, that he that he's suffering. I rejoiced. So why does he do that? So I want to just give you a few of them. In Philippians 4.10, well, that's what he just said, which is the passage I read. But I want to read it again, just to get verse 10 especially but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now, at least, at last, your care for me has flourished again. Though surely you did care, but you lacked opportunity. The second thing I want to point out about rejoicing is that we are to rejoice in tribulation, not knowing that God works through difficulties. God has a plan for suffering. One of the most difficult questions, when Christians are asked, what's the most difficult question that you get asked? One of the most difficult questions that people will say is, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? And that usually comes along with some story of some intense suffering. And it is a hard question for us to answer. And there's an accusation against God in that. There's suffering in the world, God doesn't care. If God's good, why does he let it happen? An accusation against God. But if God's got a purpose for the suffering, then all of a sudden the accusation goes away. And I'll tell you that that's how I respond to it. I always say, you assume that God doesn't have a purpose in suffering, but the God who created a world with suffering came to this world and suffered the most intense suffering for the greatest purpose of all time, to give salvation to anyone who would call on his name, he shared in it. He didn't create a world with suffering and then say, you know, one day it's going to be done. He created a world with suffering and he came to this world and became human and became a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief and suffered the death, even the death of a cross. So Romans 5, 3 says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Some translations say rejoice in tribulation. Not only that, we also rejoice in tribulation. Again, rejoicing in contentment, being, being learning to be content, rejoicing in tribulation. Why would we rejoice in tribulation? It goes on to say, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. In other words, God's got a plan for the the persecution, tribulation that you're facing, and here we could quote many verses that tell us that that God's got a plan. He's He's doing something in your faith. He's doing something in your life. He's building character inside of you, and it's far better for you to have the difficulties. You, if if you're a bodybuilder, you put your body through difficulty. In order to to make your body strong. If you need to become strong. If you go through an operation. You'll go to physical therapy. And the physical therapist will put you through what you don't want to go through. You generally don't go, I get to go to physical therapy today for my replaced knee. You're like, I'm going to scream while I'm there. But it's for your good. And we begin to learn that. And finally, that rejoicing is indeed good for us. In Proverbs 17:22, it says, "A merry heart does good like a medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones." Rejoicing, even in distress, does good like a medicine." But if we are um, our spirit if we're broken, our spirit dries up. So this strange thing that Paul would rejoice even in a prison awaiting what could be a de- well, what, what will be, but he knew could be a death sentence. The second thing that we see in this passage is that he tells us how we can be content where we are. It says in verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need. Now we know from what's going to come future that a gift has come to him. And he says, I, he wasn't speaking of a need. He wasn't like, I need, I need, I need your money. I need your help. We're going to have to shut the doors if you don't give us money. He didn't speak in regard of need. Plenty of television evangelists in the past have done that. There are plenty of, of, of pastors on YouTube and on the radio that their whole desire is to raise money. That's what they're about. I used to say of Praise the Lord, which was Tammy and Faye Baker, when they would get on and cry, We're not going to be able to be on next week if you don't give money. I used to say, I was like 18 or 19 years old, don't tease me. Just go off the air. Because there were so many people in those days saying, Christians just want money. It was because they saw that. And they saw the other guys that all they did was ask for money. Paul wasn't that way. He never asked for money. He wouldn't ask for money. But in regard to, he says, not that I speak in regard to need. Now he says, this is why. For I've learned. In whatever state I'm in, talking about contentment, you're in the state of Arizona, you learned in whatever state you're in to be content. You learn in Texas, whatever state you're in to be content. I've learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. Now, stop for a moment and look at the word learned. You have to learn to be content. And you have to learn how to abound. Both of these are true. It's not just something that we're like, you know, I've always been really good at just being content. It takes, it takes experience. It's like when that child finally leaves the nest and you hope you've done everything you can do to prepare them. But they go wild. They hit the college campus and they're like, I'm out from under mom and dad. They're in Minnesota and I'm in U of A. But it doesn't take them long to learn why mom and dad didn't want him to go wild. doesn't take long before there's some correction and they're starting to do things a little bit better in their lives. They've learned. And we have to learn as well. He says, For I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content, to know how to abase and to know how to abound. Those are the two things that he's learned. And maybe learning to abound is harder than learning to, uh, to, to abase. To not have is easier to learn how to handle that than it is to have success. I had a conversation with an NFL football player not long ago, and he told me that 70% of NFL football players go broke within a certain amount of time because they just aren't able to handle the money. They're just not prepared to be able to handle the kind of money that comes in to these, for these football players. The same thing is true for those who win the lottery. There's a certain percentage of them that after they've won it, they're worse off financially than they were before they won it. Skip Heitzig tells of a certain individual who said, I wish I would have torn up the ticket. I think he won $350 million, but it so destroyed his life that he said, I wish I would have torn up the ticket and never had it. Charles Swindoll said, for every one man who can handle failure, there are a hundred men, excuse me, I'm going to say this right. For every one man who can't handle failure, there are a hundred men who can't handle success. We have to learn how to succeed. Sometimes the pace of people's success outpaces their character. That's when you get really bad politicians. That's when you get really bad pastors. That's when you get really bad managers, and I won't ask for a show of hands of how many of you guys have had really bad managers, but their success outpaced their character, and I have had a couple of them, by the way, that you just wonder, how did you ever get this job? How can you treat people the way you treat people and keep your job? I do not understand. But their success outpaced their character, and Paul had to learn how to do both. Paul was extremely successful. Paul was a Pharisee. He had had risen to a level among his peers as a Pharisee. And so he says, I learned to abound and I learned to abase. And you had to learn how how to go without. And sometimes that's easier to learn because you just have to. (laughs) When you you don't have, you're like, we, we just don't have. We went through some really hard times financially, me and my late wife Lisa. And you just learn to do what you're doing. And it's really funny because my kids during that time, I'll ask them today, did you know how much we struggled then? And, and they always, they, they, all of them say no. We had no clue. I said, when I had that car, I had a white 1971 Ford LTD in Tucson for five years without an air conditioner. And, you know, the funny thing is, is I didn't care about it. Funny thing is, I just kind of, you know. Drove and did what I did what I would do. And the kids were there, did what they did. You guys didn't think anything. Why is he driving that car? Did nothing. They're like, no, I remember you got a really cool Bronco. Yeah, we were doing better then. (laughs) When I got the Bronco, we're doing doing better then. So he had to learn how to abase, had to learn how to abound. And I'm going to go a step further here. In learning how to abase and abound, we're learning how to be content. And so my question is, have you learned that? Can you you step back and go, I don't need that? Doesn't mean you don't get it. But you you step back and go, I'm not getting that because I need it. I don't need it. Learning to make those separations. And is it good for you at this point with your financial situation? Then he says, wherever in all things I have learned, both to be full and and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So he doesn't just talk about being rich or poor. He talks about suffering. He's learned in sickness to suffer and to be content. He's learned to to be content where he's at. And that's really what needs to happen for us. Now let's look at just three other passages on contentment from the Bible. The first one teaches us that uh, to be content with such things as we have, and this is Uh, Hebrews 13, five, let your conduct be without covetousness, such jealousy for people's stuff, right? Be content with such things as you have, for he himself said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. The reason you can be content is because Jesus is with you. So if you have Jesus in a crummy car, what changes a lot if you have Jesus and a really nice car? Maybe that's what changes is the carnal aspect. We, we, we still have Christ. If you have Jesus and a house that's pretty much a mess or Jesus and a really nice house, what changes? So Jesus says, don't be covetousness. Be content with what you have because you have, you have me with you. The second is, that you can't take it with you. No matter what you get. No matter how much you compile. You can't take it with you. It's really hard to stop getting. The Bible says, In all you're getting, get wisdom. I like that proverb because that's what we do in life. We get, we get, we get. In all you're getting, get wisdom. So this is 1 Timothy 6, 7, and 8. And I want to set this up a little bit because there were some false teachers who were teaching them that if they were godly, they could become rich. God wanted them rich if they were godly. Does it sound familiar to any of you? There's a false teaching of the faith movement today, the prosperity gospel, that they teach that if you have enough faith and if you're godly enough, you will not be sick and you will not be rich. It is a false teaching. It is not backed up in scripture. They go back to promises in the law. They go back to taking a couple passages out of context in the New Testament to make their case. But it's not biblical. The first time I ever heard it, I was 19 years old. We had moved from a really radical charismatic church to a four square church. Four square church is a Pentecostal church. It's a more established church than the charismatic church we were in. And I I had come back to Christ my wife, Lisa, had just come to Christ, and my best friend had just come to Christ. And so when we were in the charismatic church, I said, we got to get out of here. Because I knew enough to know, we got to get out of here. And we found ourselves in this Pentecostal church. And they had a, a, a preacher come that night, a man by the name of Brother Beard. And, and he taught that God wanted us rich. This is the first time I ever heard it. And God wanted, God wanted us rich. God wanted us to have a Cadillac which really didn't impress me. I didn't want a Cadillac. He said, but God, and then he said, but God wants you to have a Corvette. And I'm like, eh, all right. (laughs) He said, God wants you to have a two-story house. I'm like 20 years old, right? I don't even, I don't really have no thought about the difference between a one-story and a two-story house. God wants you to have a two-story house. And as I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, God, I'd like to be rich. God wants me rich. And afterwards, we talk to people. I've never heard this before. This is so exciting. So I go out and drive home in my 71 Vega. (laughs) And as I'm driving down the road, the Lord brings 1 Timothy 6 to my mind. This is, uh, well, this is the passage right before the one I'm going to read. He brings 1 Timothy 6 to my mind. If anyone teaches godliness... As a means of financial gain, withdraw yourself from them. Then, then it says, 1 Timothy 6, 7 and 8, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we will carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these you should be content. All of a sudden it dawned on me, and that was the beginning of a really tense time at that church, because some of my friends were coming back from Rhema Bible College, which is Kenneth Hagin's Bible College, and they were all fired up for the faith movement, and I was standing against it, and it became so tense that, and that, and the whole tongues issue. Tongues. There was two gals in our church who spoke in tongues every service. You couldn't bring a friend because she'd start. She your weird voice when she did it. And so my my, the youth pastor at the church, which was a friend of mine, Alon Kothan, said to me, when I'm talking to him one day about it, he says to me, they just started a Calvary Chapel. You should go there. <laughs> Why don't you leave our church, leave us in peace, and go to the Calvary Chapel? I was teaching junior high, and uh, Lisa was teaching five-year-olds. And so we gave a two-week notice and we went to Calvary of Albuquerque. We went to visit while they were still in the movie theater there. And within six months or so, Skip asked me to be the youth pastor. That's kind of how everything kind of happened from there. But if you're somehow, find yourself in a church that's telling you, God wants you rich. And if you are not rich, it's because you do not have enough faith. It's because you are not godly enough. Remove yourself from them. I realize this is one of my pet peeves, but deal with it. Uh, <laughs> the final passage I have for you on contentment is one that is kind of interesting with contentment. We know it well. It's, it's Matthew six thirty three. It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. In order to do that, you've got to be content because you've got to say, God's going to add food, drink and clothing to me and I'm going to be content and and, God, and take care of the kingdom of God. And God promises if you're about God's business, He'll be about your business. So this helps us in learning how to be content. Now the third thing that I have is the source of contentment. What's the source? Well this is the passage that I said earlier that people use as plaques on walls. That people use to say, I'm going to go out and do this great thing for God Four verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as I said in the intro, I'm not saying that that verse doesn't apply to that. I'm just saying it's out of context. That's all. You can go, I'm going I'm to go and help the people of Ukraine. I'm going to Poland and I'm going to help the people that are coming across. For, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can do that. that and, the, and it fits. But it is surprising when you find the context that Paul uses it in. I've learned to abase, and I've learned to abound. He's in prison. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. In other words, he's saying, I can face sickness. I can face prison. I can face death. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I think that this verse is rarely used in context. Rarely, when someone is going through a very difficult time, does someone say to them, "I, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. This isn't going to defeat you. This, you are going to, you are going to get through this. You're going to. You're, if if they're dying, you're going to make it into heaven. God's with you here, and you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you." I love that it's a base and abound, but the context is they're abased because they're under severe persecution and they're impoverished. And Paul's a base because he's in prison. I can do all things through through Christ who strengthens me. Just a a couple of verses about suffering. This world has nothing compared to the one to come, the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say glory in your suffering because God's gonna take it from you. And I'm not saying God doesn't heal or take care of suffering because he does. But listen to what he says in Romans eight eighteen, For I consider the sufferings of this present time, both Paul and the Philippians are suffering, not to be worthy to be compared of the glory which shall be revealed in us. Are you going are you in dark days? Are you going down a road you would never choose? Nothing compared to the glory. Job is that great example in the Bible of a man that lost everything. And in Job chapter 1 after he lost it all here's what Job said Job 1:20 Then Job arose tore his robe shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped What a response By the way he lost 10 children as well And he said naked I have come from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there the Lord gave and the Lord took away Taken away, has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God wrongly. I'm not saying that maybe you've never charged God wrongly. Because I have. I've said to God, I don't think you love us. In the dark day of my life. I charged God wrongly. But Job didn't. It's not that that God can't forgive us of that. But what a response. God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's saying better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Is akin anyway. In Philippians 3.10, we looked at this a while ago. Paul knew that the fullness of God is what he wanted. He wanted the fullness of God. And people will sometimes say, I want everything. I want everything God has for me. And I've said it before, especially when I was young. I want everything God has. I don't want anything God doesn't have. I want it all. I want everything God has for me. And by that, I meant whatever spiritual gift God wants to give me, whatever God wants me to do in my life, I want everything he has. Here's what Paul said in Philippians 3.10. That I might know him in the power of his resurrection. That's good. That's good. I know how to abase. And in the fellowship of his suffering, I know how to abound. Being conformed to his death. Paul says, God will even be glorified in my death. What a sobering thought. I have three things in closing. The only way we learn contentment is to go through it. Is, is to go through being made to be content. It's hard for us to learn it any other way. We go through it. Whether we, we learn to be content, if we have a lot or a little, we got to go through it. And we make mistakes when we have a lot and we make mistakes when we don't have anything. Number two, rejoicing and contentment comes through a relationship, not stuff. When we rejoice, in rela- in, it's not because we got more stuff, but it's because of the relationships that we have. For Paul, it was the relationship with the Philippian church. He also talks about Christ being with us in the midst of contentment. So it's the relationship with Christ and the relationship with the church. Number three, when we are obedient to scripture, the power to do all things is there. And I pointed this out a few times in hard commands in the Bible. When the Bible says to, that, that, to love the unlovable and we go, I don't know if I can do that. Well, with the command comes the power to do it. Like the man with the withered hand, God says, Jesus says, stretch out your hand. He had the power to stretch out his hand. When he says, forgive and you will be forgiven. You're like, I don't know if I can forgive them. Start to forgive them. Just go ahead and say, I, I let it go, Lord. I let it go. With the command comes the power to be able to do it. Be content in all things. With the command, when you say, I'm gonna learn to be content, comes the command to be able to do it. And we will find the satisfaction, the surprising satisfaction that comes from being content in our Savior. Stand with me, would you? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this passage and that speaks to us about the importance of being content. We thank you for what you are doing in each one of us and we pray that you would help us to be content. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would direct us and lead us and guide us and that this would be we would be doers of the word and not hearers only and we thank you for this in the name of Jesus we pray amen